Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 podcast where we get together every fortnight to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. In this episode of the podcast, I'm hoping to explore the fascination some of us have with Star Trek. This little show debuted in 1966 as a science fiction series on NBC. Many subsequent seasons of the show, including an animated series, numerous movies, theme parks, exhibits, and of course, conventions, followed. It's perhaps an understatement to say that it's a global phenomenon spanning five decades, and still it continues to exist and evolve. Joining me today are two fans who also happen to be my colleagues at 10.7, Tess Flynn and Les Lim. Welcome to the podcast, Tess and Les. Hello. Hello. It's nice to be talking to you guys today. So I wanted to start with each of you, or at least with each of your earliest memories of Star Trek. What's the first thing you can remember about Star Trek? The Star Trek is how I learned to program the VCR. <laughs> I was six. <laughs> you were six. Wow. <laughs> Uh, that actually might be my impetus for learning to, to program the VCR too. I think I, I probably, uh, I was too young for, for TNG for taping those, but I probably taped every DS9 episode as it was going and was while I was watching it at the same time. Uh, Hold up. TNG and DS9. Oh, that's right. So uh, TNG is how we colloquially refer to the the series known as Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, DS9 is is how we would refer to Deep Space Nine, which is a series that came um, sort of probably after The Next Generation on television. So what's the earliest memory of the first episode you can recall? I, I, I don't know if, if there's like a first memory of an episode that I recall. Like what I, what I recall is when I was a kid, the Star Trek was, was already pretty well established and it was played in syndication every weekday at seven o'clock. So, like, I didn't really understand, like, any of the arcs or anything. I would just, like, watch from episode to episode, and I would watch it pretty much every day at 7 o'clock. I got inundated with, with Star Trek at the time. It was still during the original run, so um, they, they must have been earlier episodes in the first, like, two, two or three seasons. What year was that? Probably. It was in, uh, so I would, I would watch in, in, like, in the apartment space that we ran above my parents' store. I was there until 1990. So this would have been when I was about seven years old or so, six or seven years old, 1988, 1989. And you said those were the ones that were in syndication. So it was some of the earlier seasons. That must've been, that must've been earlier. Yeah. It, it, so the next generation started in 1987. So by the time it was 1989, there, there were probably um, in the middle of the third season, there wouldn't have been that many episodes to, to air yet. They still managed to rotate them five nights a week. And you test, does that sound about the same time and the same sort of episodes? Or is it or is it a different experience for you? See, this is just making me feel old. See, my <laughs> first experience with it was when I was about six, and this that's as far back as my memory records usually go. It usually doesn't go back further back than than maybe five-ish for me. But by the time I was that age, I had already watched all of my dad's collection of taped Star Trek films. And I watched and rewatched Star Trek II, recorded from one of the local 
uh, broadcast stations because we only had broadcast. Um, and that was I, I even those Star Trek the, movies, I, right? That, those were the Star Trek movies. They didn't even have the next generation yet at that time for me. This was in 86. At the time, I I had watched them so many times that not only did I know where which tapes to watch, but also because they were recorded from broadcast, I could tell I could and I still remember to this day where the where the broadcast dropped off at particular points in the film, <laughs> even though I have long since passed have more updated copies that don't have those drop offs. <laughs> Do they still have all the original like nineteen eighty six commercial breaks in them too? I think my dad might have edited the, edited those out while he was watching it. Oh, it's too bad. That's that's yeah. part of the experience. So your equivalent of binge watching would be cassette VHS cassette after cassette. Put one in, watch. Put another one in, watch. Is that is that something you did? Occasionally, yeah. That's very different than just staying in front of Netflix and doing that now. So I would say that's kind of one of the one of the tangible things you guys had. Um, so VHS cassettes, I, I know that was something that I had when I uh, was growing up watching movies and TV. Is we would I would record uh, shows that were on TV from the United States, and um, I grew up in South Africa under sanctions, so we had a fairly limited experience with American TV. The only way I knew to socialize with other people, it never really occurred to me that I could actually talk about these things that I was watching on TV because I, you know, it kind of was an isolating experience for me just watching TV at home and then not talking about it at school. I don't know why it didn't occur to me. Did, did you guys have a similar experience or did you find that you were talking about Star Trek with your friends at school or with your family? Yeah, actually, probably probably not very much at school. I think that like I had a couple friends who who maybe um, enjoyed Star Trek, maybe not to the degree that I did. I was very much sort of like passively plunk me down in front of the TV, and then I would just sit there like enraptured for like an hour, and uh, and I don't think I, I realized exactly what I was absorbing at the time. But yeah, that was something that was pretty pretty personal to me. I don't think the rest of my family necessarily were as into it as I was. I think they all were, were aware of it. They would all watch too, but I don't think it had quite the same effect for, for most other people in my life. Les, do you think that you initially started watching Star Trek because it was just on at the same time and you weren't doing anything at seven o'clock every night? Or was there some other reason that you came, kept coming back to that show? I mean, it was, it was, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I don't recall exactly, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there was like an Im- immediate kinship, right? I mean, for, for me at the time, it was like there, there was, it was in space, which was cool. Every so often there would be a space battle with like laser pew pew effects, which was also cool. You know, there's a character that's a, that's a robot, basically an Android. And, uh, that was fascinating. I think at, at some point, like it, I felt like it was, it was just mine. And so, I would want to consume as much of it as possible. How about you, Tess? What got you hooked? Well, I, I blame my dad. My dad is the one who really liked the, the Star Trek movies, and I believe he even watched the original series when it was broadcast. But I didn't tend to talk about it outside of the house all that much because I didn't have really any friends for most of my schooling. And I also I also knew that if I tried, you know, 
being anything other than a quiet, lonely cipher that people would make fun of me. So I just kind of went into the quiet, lonely cipher thing instead. <laughs> when you did watch those shows, um, were, were you watching with your dad? Did you ever do that as a joint activity? Um, when uh, Star Trek The Next Generation was broadcast, that became kind of a family thing. Everyone would sit down and we would all watch the show together. Even when the rest of my family didn't didn't seem all that interested in it, my dad and I still often watched it. Do you think there was a defining moment when you realized you were a fantasy? See, the thing is, for me, it's really weird because I just don't recall a me before Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of same. Really? Yeah. So it's always been part of your DNA. Yeah, it always... Um, I, I can't... This was always one of like the formative stories, just like some people grew up with Jesus. This is... The, to me, I can't remember when Star Trek wasn't on the television. Wow. So I think my defining moment is certainly not in star trek but it does when you talk about it that way it's interesting to me that both you les and tess have this passion for star trek and yet you kind of grew up in different states in different cities and approximately the same time and yet there's this kinship about it to me it feels a little daunting it feels like there's so much of this universe and canon of star trek that from my point of view trying to get into it, I feel like I'm going to miss out if I don't start right at the beginning and see all of these, you know, 500 hours of episodes so that I can say that, you know, feel like I know what's going on. Well, do you think this, do you think this is a valid criticism? It can be, it can be a valid criticism. In my opinion, I felt very similar when I decided to adopt the fandom of Dr. Who and it felt like this, massive monolithic wonderment that I couldn't possibly, you know, breach without exhaustive research. And that's kind of true, but each particular fandom is, is unique. In the case of Doctor Who, it's quite a bit messier. There's a lot less of a, a cogent, unified story, um, which is even, which is hilarious because even most of the Star Treks do not have a cogent, unified story. <laughs> That, that actually uh, resonates for me as well. I, I didn't come into Doctor Who until, until actually probably to the, the 2005 revival of the show uh, with the BBC. I had, was only just sort of like tangentially aware of Doctor Who's existence, but I think it's, it's sort of similar in, insofar as like, I, I don't know anybody who was like a Doctor Who lifer from the beginning because I, I just don't know many people who were around when the first season of Doctor Who was, was, was aired in the, in the 60s. And my, my recollection of being a Star Trek fan doesn't involve anything like coming in from the beginning, from the beginning of, of my memory. Sure. But I mean, I was watching random, whatever random episodes would come on syndication on the television at seven o'clock. I don't think there was anything that I lost by not watching them in order. Watching something like Star Trek in, in the eighties is very much like watching a, a short story unfold. Every episode is meant to be self-contained. Every episode is meant to be something that, that you could casually just pick up and and watch that episode and then and then drop off there wasn't the the rise of serialized plot lines back then as there is now so there might be depths that you lose or that you don't that you don't quite get like in jokes in the universe that become richer as you as you learn more about the universe but those are not essential to understanding what it is about star trek that's so compelling 
what is compelling that needs to be understood about Star Trek? So for me, it was, I think a, a huge part of it was, uh, that there are, there are all these smart people. That's, that's just who they are. It's not anything that's, that's not remarkable. That's not the thing that is remarkable about them. They aren't treated differently for that reason. They're smart, competent people who like each other, who, who team up together to, to solve a problem together. That's sort of powerful as a kid, I think, to have that as a message. Growing up in a, you know, in a public school system in, in the 80s and not necessarily having, having people to talk to, I think that's a really easy sort of fantasy to slip into of just people who are competent and aren't judged for their competency. They just are. It sounds like you're describing the meritocracy that uh, seems to exist in the in the future world a few centuries from now that Star Trek depicts. What's compelling for you, Tess? It's it's changed like very much when I was when I was small. I was totally into the space is cool and laser battles and things like that. And Data is a robot. That's awesome. As I've gotten older, though. Uh, I've kind of started seeing it as uh, a source of a continual inspiration for, for the STEM field. A few days ago, I ran across a blog post from the Smithsonian about the Star Trek communicator badge that the astronaut Sally Ride had. She donated that to a museum. And I hadn't had no idea about this until I actually read this blog post, which was how... The, how it, for her it was Star Trek Voyager, but how the show inspired her to become an astronaut, to do things, to become, uh, to go into the STEM field and and do science and nifty things. For me, the the biggest influence was like say Scotty, because Scotty from the original series was the engineer, and he he was the guy who who managed to fix things and help people and. Not only was that he didn't he didn't have massive muscles he wasn't you know a powerful individual he was he was a guy with a bad accent <laughs> he still was able to help people through his skill and his determination that inspired me to go yes I want to do that too yeah I feel a lot the same way I think uh, I didn't realize necessarily um, at the time that that how much of an influence it was being on me but. No one on Star Trek is out for personal gain. No one is motivated by by career advancement. The the motivation for for everyone in Star Trek is to is to help people, is to explore, is to gain knowledge, is to to figure out figure out the answers to their problems together. The fact that there's no money in in Star Trek at all for for a very long period of time is is something that I didn't realize I had had become such a elemental part of, of my existence. Like I, I didn't think about going to college or getting a job or doing anything for the purpose of having a salary. I, I always sort of deep down felt like eventually I'm, I'm going to operate in some sort of equivalent of a starship where I'm, I'm part of a team that, um, that is out to do good, that is out to, to explore and, and to better ourselves. 
the future in Star Trek is seems like a liberal and progressive utopia. And I'm fascinated by the fact that there's no money in it. You know, when I was doing the research for this last week, I discovered that there's no money in Star Trek. And when I think back to the not so many episodes that I've watched, I realized that, oh, yeah, they never really transact with anything. Well, what's the story behind that? How, how did Star Trek evolve not having money? Or is, or is that how Gene Roddenberry just set it up? That's always been, I think, that was one of Gene Roddenberry's original concepts for the series is that absent the need to acquire resources, that humanity would be, be free to, to become explorers, to, to better themselves, that there, there would be a shift in the, in the economic paradigm toward self-knowledge rather than toward material gain. I think that's more explicit in... The next generation where there are replicators that are able to just produce food for you and produce uh, material goods. There's no need for, for capital when all of your basic physical needs are, are met, I think is the idea. Um, the concept of concise, I mean, there's still, there's still property in Star Trek. And like, there's, it's not really clear how the society evolved this way. It's a contrivance of, of writing it to be able to, to give yourself a utopia and then ask questions about that utopia without necessarily going through each of the steps in history that get you to that place. I, there are parts of it that I can't really answer. Post-scarcity society is, is sort of a premise of the show. What do you think we can do now to kind of get to that utopia sooner? That's a difficult question. I don't think I'm qualified to answer that. Maybe Tess is. No. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> Short of inventing a replicator, th there's no way to follow the Star Trek canon timeline of it. Yeah, I mean, even in the Star Trek canon, the way they get there is is through a very, a very, very dark keyhole. How do you figure? Because canonically in... Canonically, if I remember the canon correctly, in the, in the 90s, there, there was a general war called the eugenics war ah, due to okay. a lot of genetic manipulation that left a good portion of the population devastated then there was world war three which was even worse <laughs> and in the complete disorientation and destruction that followed you had this one guy named zephyrin cochran who for for reasons of wanting to have wanting to have money to sell the technology, invented warp drive, and inadvertently attracted the attention of aliens. <laughs> and, and so after and, and so after that, people went, wait, huh? There's a bigger universe out there. Then vague vagary happened, and then you had a utopia afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little bit of storytelling hand waving that that went about to that to that step, and somewhere at that point there was no need for money anymore because you could just replicate everything you needed. Yeah, that gets a little complicated as the the show goes on. You know, there are there are other societies that that have something that are that are like money. Several of the episodes refer to to things like credits that aren't really fleshed out. They're not really it's not really talked about how this this whole intergalactic economy works. There is definitely plenty of room within Star Trek to talk about economic inequality and haves versus have-nots. They're usually explored on a level of other societies that the crew meet that are not part of the Federation. But there are stories about 
some of the consequences of economic inequality within the Federation as well. Is it is it assumption that all of the races and aliens in Star Trek are at approximately the same point in time as far as evolution is concerned? Because they all seem to have about the same kind of technology, right? They can all fly really fast. They can, you know, they have laser beams for guns and some, some are, some races are more interested in war than others. And it, it, so like they've all evolved and have about the same technology. Is that right? I could delve into canon about this if you'd like. <laughs> I'd love to know. It's not very overtly stated, but if you follow a lot of the, the earlier in the timeline shows, you'll notice that there is actually a level of less technical ability from human species at the very beginning. And there was, we didn't have, you know, very fast ships compared to say the Vulcans, which had faster ships. We didn't have uh, shielding technology like the Andorians did and so on and so forth. But by the time you get to the original series of Star Trek, and by the time you definitely get to Star Trek, the next generation, a lot of these differences have been ironed out because they take place within the Federation, which, because it's an alliance of multiple different alien species, we shared technology. And as a result, there's a lot more of a, of an, of a combination of technological elements, which makes it seem like they're particularly powerful. And it does seem that most of the other species in Star Trek are either way, way unknowably beyond us or nowhere near us or about somewhere, somewhere around us. There's definitely a kind of a, kind of a three humped bell curve here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's a lot of that comes from, from the storytelling needs. I think that there's, there's a lot of room for stories in, in science fiction about races and cultures that are technologically have some sort of technological parity because it's a way to explore things like in our recent history with bipolarity between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. There's a lot of room in science fiction to tell stories about not very advanced societies also dealing with extremely advanced societies to talk about um, that ta- the, what, the consequences of that kind of technological disparity as well. And so it, it sort of depends on the kind of story that the writer wants to tell from from time to time. I think there's there's definitely room for both. I think that like the the universe of Star Trek only kind of makes sense because all of the major powers in the galaxy have close to technological parity. Otherwise, it would be hard to write conflicts into the show. Yeah, at, at either end of that bell curve, there's been room for stories about encountering races of, of very different technological prowess. Is it called the Federation? That's all of these um, planets and peoples that have shared technology that you alluded to earlier, Tess. That's correct. And then there's Starfleet, which is kind of the military slash police slash research wing of the Federation. And that division is intentionally kind of murky and mucky in the show. Yeah, the way you described it, Sharing technologies, it made me think of an open source community like this, this federation of different planets and species have come together to unify and, and share knowledge. And so that's how they got to be more on par and have more equal parity with the technologies that humans have compared to other races in the, in the federation. And I, I kind of wonder if that's a good comparison. Are they actually sharing technology kind of the way that we, we think of open source today? 
I mean, there's no canonical sign of event of, you know, here is a technology that was invented in the Federation, uh, shared with, you know, absolutely everyone. There's probably one or two incidents, but you don't really see those as more as, as a story in of them themselves. Usually they're used as plot devices. So let me switch gears a little here and ask you both. If you had to pick a character in the whole entire Star Trek canon that was most aligned with maybe who you are today, who would it be? I don't necessarily think I identify with any, any particular one character. I, I, never, I never thought of it as playing favorites that way, I guess. Most of my favorite episodes of, of Star Trek are, the standalone episodes are, are next generation episodes that, that feature Picard. He gets the mo- the meatiest stories written for him. And he's also, you know, probably the most accomplished actor of the bunch. So he, he's able to sell those better than anybody else. Those are always all standouts for me. Which is interesting. I don't necessarily think he's the most interesting character. He's just the... Because he comes out fully formed. He's, he's so considerate. And um, he, he always seems to end up doing the, the right thing which is a little bit hard. It's a bit of a Mary Sue problem. And Mary, a Mary Sue is, is a trope of, uh, like a, a, a common, a common uh, trope in these stories about uh, too perfect character. He and Data are the characters who uh, spend the most time talking about and worrying about the moral and ethical ramifications of, of the actions they take. And that always interested me. How about you, Tess? Which one's your favorite uh, that really depends on, on which part. In terms of personal significance, I rather liked uh, both Scotty and Data for getting, you know, technical prowess and interest, but also characters like, you know, Spock, also Data, also uh, Seven of Nine, for example, also the Doctor from Star Trek Voyager. Those characters pr- provided a very interesting nature that I, I tried to have nurtured within myself. That's something that, that, that still has a lot of appeal to me as, as I get older. And I, I still rather enjoy looking how those characters have changed in my perspective as I get older. Who was your favorite one very early on when you first started watching Tess? So when I was really young um, and only had, you know, Star Trek movies, I, I, I really liked Spock. Um, when TNG started, I, I just glommed on to Data. I really, really liked that character. Data's the character that is the uh, cyborg. No, he's an android. What, what, wait, android. one of the two. He's an android. He's android. Yeah. Okay, and a cyborg is an alien race, right? No, that's that does the board. Anyone who has been modified with with additional technology, and that that term is an, an intentionally kind of kind of vague because if you have an artificial hip, does that make you a cyborg? <laughs> that's a good question. Do you, if you have an actual kind of computer nerve interface, um, does that make you a cyborg? Where is the line? It gets gets fuzzy that term i think it makes you a cyborg any kind of enhancement does that for you i think i think the more interesting question is what is what does it mean if you are i think those are the the kinds of questions that uh, that star trek likes to explore are you bound by the same morality and the same rules if you're enhanced or if you're a robot on its own 
in particular with with the the cyborg human distinction. So I think the the place where, where this is explored the most in Star Trek is is with um, the race of, called the Borg, who are the, derivatively the name the name comes from cyborg. The Borg are uh, a race of of drones with a hive mind. They they communicate with each other and are controlled by the hive mind through their cybernetic implants, and they appear to have lost all vestiges of individuality. They are explored as the ultimate in slowing off individual desires in, in favor of collective advancement and collective goals. But also they're they're manifestly evil. In in the pursuit of their collective goals, they they the individual drones no longer have any sense of self. They murder and assimilate cultures that are not of themselves in order to bring them into their perfect collective in order to uh, eliminate conflict, eliminate all of the problems that come with diversity by, uh, by reducing it to, to one single hive mind. That always was an interesting sort of moral conundrum. This is collectivism taken to an extreme. Is that a parallel to anything that we had in reality at the time of the writing and, the, and at the time that the Borg were introduced? I think that the Borg represents any sort of ideological monolith that prevents you from considering the individual experiences of others. You can interpret that to be about nationalism, um, to mm. be about xenophobia. You can interpret that in a number of different ways, depending on how you're, how you're going for it. But, but those are the ways that that really, really resonated for me. What do you think of the Borg test? A lot of what I keep thinking of is very much paralleled with what Les just said. They're an interesting combination of reprehensible and also attractive in a number of different ways. Um, <laughs> How attractive? You get this explored a lot more in Voyager, interestingly enough, where you, you have the attraction of perfection. And that, that attraction is something that is probably part and parcel of why I work with computers all the time, because I rather like that sense of organized perfection. But at the same time, it's taken to this wholly blunt and terrifying level with the Borg that it affect, affects mind and body and society in ways that it really should never do so. And that it's that, that combination that I rather rather find both compelling and frightening at the same time. It occurs to me, to some extent, that um, the Borg are what happens when you design a perfectly agile process. <laughs> we are the Jira. All of your scrum will belong to oh, Great. Yeah, we've, we've eliminated all inefficiencies by eliminating the possibility that other individual minds could screw up the, uh, the process. We've achieved perfect parity in, in process. We are perfectly agile. Yeah, that sounds a little scary, Les. Yeah, at the same time, I would love to be able to have a perfect process, a perfect software development process to be able to, to, you know, to just say that we are all on the same page and we don't need to discuss it any further. We can eliminate uh, extraneous meetings to be able to just move forward with a common goal. That's really, really powerful. It really is. It would be. Maybe Jira can add a plugin that helps us with that. <laughs> So I know that there are many hundreds of hours of um, Star Trek, right? And there's episodes of series that have spanned from the 60s. There's movies. There's lots of video. 
Les, do you have a favorite episode? A favorite episode? I, I, I probably, or, or a movie? Or a movie? I mean, yeah. if you if you like a movie more than an episode of a series, uh, you know, plenty. There, are, there, are, there are tons of of standouts for me uh, as far as movies go. Like the the VHS tape that that we had that that I watched over and over because I I only had one VHS tape was uh, was Star Trek IV: The Voyage Home, which is uh, I think colloquially that would be known as the one with the whales. I, I watched that one probably over and over again. That's my that's the the tops of my list of of Star Trek stories with the original cast. Is that the one where Shatner and Leonard Nimoy go back to Earth and they have to try to use a bus and they they can't figure out how to do it because they have no concept of money? That's that's definitely a scene in there. Yes, I think he, that's the one that you're talking. About. I I, rem- I remember that trailer from years ago. I I don't know why, but I'm it's it's amusing that you picked that as the as the best one. Yeah, it's Star Trek Four, the one about the bus, whales, right? Yeah, it's it's really about the whales, the the buses. <laughs> that important. Sorry, I interrupted you. That was one. What were the others? That's one. Um, th- there are there are a number of individual uh, next generation episodes that I think are are amazing that I keep going back to. There's there's one called Darmok where Picard has to try to learn how to communicate with a race that only speaks in metaphor. They don't have any literal language. That one is has spawned any number of T-shirts and memes that are, are only going to be understandable to to you know people who are in in the know. There's an episode called Lower Decks, which is an episode about that follows unknown characters, like people who are not senior staff on the starship, but like people who are just like you know the bartender, you know the lowly ensign, the the people who are uh, sort of outside of the loop and are experiencing all of the things that are happening to the ship from the perspective of people who, who don't know what's going on. That one has always been poignant for me. There's one called Remember Me, which is uh, one that I came to recently that, that uh, there's like a Twitter feed about this that went viral uh, recently, but it's about um, the doctor who is a, a woman. And that, that is an unremarkable thing about the show, which is, at the same time, wholly remarkable. The, the doctor, uh, you know, in in the eighties, having having a woman doctor um, who whose presence is, is entirely unremarkable, is in itself remarkable. No, no one cares that she's a woman. She she's the most qualified person, and everybody trusts her. The thing about remember me that is that is sort of amazing is that like the the premise of it is that Doctor Crusher is in an alternate reality where people that she remembers start to sort of wink out of existence, but only, only she remembers that they ever existed in the first place for everybody else. It's as if these people uh, had never existed before. They don't remember them. They don't know who they are. And so throughout the course of the episode, people keep disappearing and the doctor is the only one who remembers them, keeps telling the rest of the remaining crew that these people that have been colleagues for, for ages are, are winking out of existence. And it, it sounds crazy and implausible. And, Almost no point during the episodes does anybody even think to, to say that you're crazy or you're unqualified. They trust her implicitly. They go to links to ensure that they are not the ones who are wrong. They, uh, they believe her. And the, the premise of just believing someone is extremely powerful. And something that has salience nowadays, that's always one that... Uh, that I found to be pretty profound. And then, you know, they ended up screwing that character in other ways uh, with other episodes, but we don't have to talk about those. Uh, <laughs> those are a few standouts for me. Which was the first one you mentioned? I didn't write that one down. The first one is called Darmok. Darmok, D-A-R-M-M-O-K. 
Okay. Okay. That's a really great standalone science fiction story. And then Tess, what about you? Any favorites? There's a lot of them that are favorites and it really depends on what I'm what I'm going for. I usually like saying my stock answer is Wrath of Khan Star Trek 2 tends to be my favorite, but that's mostly because it's got the most nostalgia factor for me. I've watched the most times because it was one of the first ones that I've watched and it always managed to enthrall me every time that I put it on. But I actually do rather enjoy uh Star Trek the Motion Picture, otherwise known as the slow boring one. <laughs> If you have a, if you have if you have a director's remaster of that, that is a pretty damn movie to watch. It is really gorgeous towards the end. But I rather like that because you know I like slow and plotting movies. But other episodes that that tend to stick out in my mind is Devil in the Dark from Star Trek the original series. That one is a, a very popular one and tr- takes a takes kind of a, a general this is a monster movie esque plotline and then turns it around halfway through, which is really kind of fascinating. There's so many episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation I could list off, but in addition to the ones that Les has always pointed out, I rather liked Contagion from earlier in the series. That's a nice standalone one that's back when the series was not necessarily very well solid at that point, but it's still it's still a really solid story in my opinion. It has lots of data in it, which is kind of nice. Best of both worlds, parts one and two. Uh, everyone who watches TNG tends to bring that one up. Um, cause it's the Borg episode as well as Q who, which is the other Borg episode. I could go on forever about TNG episodes, but let's, let's, let's pass that over okay. and go on to other ones. And in DS nine, there's uh, in the pale moonlight, which is a really interesting kind of breaks down in general. DS uh, deep space nine breaks down a lot of Trek isms um, in interesting and fascinating ways. And I, I would actually recommend you not watch them first. I would recommend you take a step back away from, from DS9 because it's more fascinating and more interesting because it was intentionally written to break down some of those ideas. And so when you have more of an established internal sense of the story, you, you'll get more out of it. Um, but in the, in that, that episode, a standalone episode that has absolutely no, no real bearing on anything, uh, in the cards from DS9. That's a hilarious, fun kind of caper episode. I forget the episode title. Uh, is, I think it, isn't the cards the one where uh, where they're, they're trying to find a baseball card? Yes. For, uh, oh, that one's a great one. I it is, watch it is a great one. It's a lot of fun. Is it, kind of kind of the thing. No, that's not the episode I'm thinking of. I forget what episode it was. It was another episode with Nog talking about the Great Material Continuum. I forget which episode that was. That, uh, was that part the the B plot of Treachery, Faith, and the Great River? Uh, you know, it might be. I, I thought it might have been, but I'm looking at the page right now, and it doesn't look like it. For Voyager, and I, I always get the episode name mixed up for this one. For Voyager, there's s- several really good episodes involving the Doctor, but also episodes involving Seven of Nine. And in one particular one... Seven of Nine and the Doctor are the only crew members that are on the ship at the time. Everyone else is in suspension because of plot reasons. That actually turned into a very fascinating character study that kind of broke down a lot of 
a lot of things and, and really kind of opened up that character of Seven of Nine to uh, interesting and more heightened level than uh, I think the producers ever wanted to do. But I'm glad that they were arm wrestled into doing it. <laughs> What is Seven of Nine? Seven of Nine is a character from Star Trek Voyager. She was a Borg, and she was rescued from the Collective and spends most of the latter half of Voyager kind of finding her humanity and individuality. Another episode that's really good for that character is The Raven. That's that's a fascinating episode, which kind of brings to mind a lot of interesting other bits of character. And I'm sure there's there's tons more. I don't have any for... I don't have... Well, okay, so Enterprise. That's the last one I'm going to talk about. Honestly, with Enterprise, there's no real reason to watch it. <laughs> By the time you get past all of TNG and everything and then finally watch DS9, you might want to watch Enterprise because it does have its moments. But the episode that keeps coming to my mind with that series is Inner Mirror Darkly Parts 1 and 2, purely because they take such a silly idea from from Star Trek of the evil alternate universe. And they just go whole diving into the entire thing, completely redoing the intro sequence to make it seem like you were literally watching an episode of the show in universe. And the actors just have it up. And it's just a delight to watch for how utterly cheesy it is. <laughs> What was the name of that uh, episode again? Uh, In a Mirror Darkly, Parts 1 and 2. Arguably one of the best episodes of Enterprise ever made. <laughs> All right. I think, I think that's awesome. So, so my son and I started watching Season 10 of Doctor Who, and the first five minutes were crucial to actually convincing him that this might be something that we could watch together. Which five minutes do I show to him of Star Trek to have the same effect? That kind of thing is, is inherently adversarial, and I actually don't really like that approach, mostly because okay. that puts the onus of proving that the thing you like is worth watching to another person who's going to be judging it harshly. And the problem is that even between Les and I, we get different things out of the series. Yeah. We get different things, and we're interested in different things. And so I like turning that conversation around, and I usually like asking, well, this thing has been in the larger cultural zeitgeist. You've probably heard of some of it. What do you want to know about? The wonderful thing is most of Star Trek, you can clip out those episodes and just watch them and explore that topic more fully. Honestly, what I would like to do is try to distill Star Trek down into a sentence or two that piques my son's interest and then show him a clip of something that says, Oh, this is interesting. Like I, I think there's probably a series of good clips I could show him. What I don't want to do is show him an outlier. You're, you're going to elevator pitch your, your son on Star Trek. There is TNG. Which one? The defector, the one, the one with the Romulan defector. So that that's one of my top five TNG episodes. That would be, that's, that's got some pretty not advanced concepts, but like that, that one is, is really uh, interesting to me in the context of history and you'd probably get it. The other reason why I point that one out is that it's very, it, it hits the notes very early on in the episode. 
it, it has it has a nice action stinker that starts up right away after the intro sequence. There's a wait what and then it keeps going after that, and it's a fascinating bit of of mystery. I guess the next one I would probably pick after that that would be a little bit more thoughtful would be the drumhead from TNG. Also a really good one. Also one that seems like if you had, if you knew about McCarthyism, that would be something that, that would really resonate. That would really speak to to you and completing that experience. Which one is the McCarthyism one? The drumhead or is it another one? It's the drumhead. Oh, it, okay. And the defector was which series? They're, those two episodes are both TNG. They're both TNG. Okay. Okay, I like the idea of some action in the beginning. I think that might grab his attention. Okay, well, what's your hope for Star Trek in the future? I know that Discovery is the latest, right? That's what just came up. What are you hoping to see, Tess, Star Trek in the future? I'm going to try to not rant too hard about Discovery, because Discovery has been annoying the heck out of me the longer the season goes on. Uh, it, it hasn't gotten to the point where I put it down yet, but man, I keep thinking about it. I think the thing that, and I, th- I think the reason why I bring up Discovery as well at this point is that it's an interesting reflection of what I have been thinking Star Trek should be because Discovery doesn't exactly feel like it should be Star Trek. So it makes me wonder a lot more about it. And especially at this particular point in history, it feels like we need something with quite a bit more, quite a bit more hope, a little bit more positivity for the future where things aren't necessarily all wrapped up in a bow like they were in TNG, but still has some, some possibility for, for good things to happen. Right now we don't seem to have a lot of that. What I really hope for in the future is more people to watch the, uh, watch one of these shows or a future show and being inspired like I was to take up a STEM field or a technical field and, and use that to try to do what they can to bring betterment and to help people. How about you, Liz? Yeah, I'm kind of on the same page. I don't, I don't need it necessarily to be Star Trek. I think that um, I want there to be a show that has a fundamentally positive and hopeful vision for, for somebody who, it doesn't know it, but for whom those those ideas become foundational. I, I don't know even if Star Trek is the is the right is the right vehicle for that anymore. It was for me, and it, it wouldn't necessarily have to be the same for somebody else. Uh, I always thought that the strength of Star Trek was in short story, was in episodic science fiction that was was easily digestible in in a, a small period of time. And not so much with the blockbuster space opera kind of kind of epic tales that uh, that Star Wars does so well. So to that extent, like the the movie franchise that's that's currently out right now doesn't really doesn't really hit ring a bell or, or hit with me. I haven't actually been able to watch Discovery at all, the new series that's on CBS All Access. But I, I'm not sure. Yeah, so I, I can't speak to, to whether or not that's that that would uh, that would pike my interest, or, or if I think that would be what I want from the series going forward. But yeah, I I want there to be at least one thing that is is hopeful about our future. I think we could all use that uh, in this day and age. So, last question, Tess. I'm going to go with you first. How many hours since the last episode? Uh, less than twenty four because I watched Discovery last night. 
in you last? <laughs> uh, probably, probably Friday. Probably, yeah, so 72. Okay, I lied. One more question. Most number of times you've ever seen an episode of Star Trek? That's incalculable. I mean, I don't have an internal counter, but I'm, I'm sure there are episodes that I've seen literally dozens of times. Same. I think that brings us to the end of this podcast, then. Tess and Les, thank you both so much for spending your time with me, for sharing your thoughts and your experiences. It's really been a pleasure to speak with you both. You can find us online at 107.com slash podcast. This is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening. <laughs>